You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 18. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for listening. My guest today is retired Lieutenant Colonel John Huggins, known as Huggy. That might be the first time I've actually ever said his full name. I met him in 2018 when he was announcing the Hangar 24 Air Fest out in Redlands, California. I was flying it quite a good time. Huggy started flying the U-2 back in 1989, and he is actually still flying it today, which is impressive. We're going to talk about his aviation career and a little bit more in the podcast today. Before we get rolling, I would just like to say, again, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe. Leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That helps me out. And I like to talk about Wingman Watch, sponsor this episode. It's been awesome working with them for the past year. Veteran-owned, started by a fighter pilot. And it's cool to see all the designs they've been rolling out. I was just on wingmanwatch.com this morning, and they have a whole slew of groups that are building group custom watches right now. If you're a group, an organization, and you're thinking about building a watch, I encourage you to swing over to wingmanwatch.com. They'll take care of everything from start to finish. All you have to do is just provide an initial thought and idea, and they'll do it all for free. Swing over to wingmanwatch.com. You can mention my name and receive a discount on your group order. Or if you see a watch you already like, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off that order. All right, with that been knocked out, let's get into the podcast with Huggy. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, awesome. We'll, we'll get rolling into the podcast. Huggy, thanks for joining me. Excited to talk about uh, your career, aviation, and just life in general with you. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you. Well, uh, as we get rolling into it, we give everyone just the elevator pitch of who Huggy is and and what a snapshot of your life looks like because you got a lot we're gonna we're gonna unpack it yeah well i'll uh, uh on the uh in a nutshell uh, uh i consider myself a houstonian lived lived all over the all over the place four high schools in four years dad was an engineer uh and, and mainly in the space program but in radars communication and some uh, some classified government work too so moved around east coast west coast but always back in houston i grew up right next door to nasa the space program johnson space center lived about two miles down the street from there, and uh, my classmates through elementary school and high school were people like, uh, uh, with the last name of Armstrong and uh, Borman and, uh, and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, you know, you're five, six, seven years old, you know, hey, what does your dad do? Oh, he, he works down the street. What does your dad do? Oh, he's an astronaut. Oh, great. Let's go play kickball. You know, nobody cared. <laughs> That's you know? wild. And uh, it, was, it was pretty neat to go back and actually go through the neighborhood and see the houses of some of the, you know, the original Mercury astronauts down, you know, down in the neighborhood and that kind of thing. But uh, did that uh, college at the University of Texas where I was on the ROTC scholarship, commissioned out of there uh, with a degree in computer science and had had uh, orders for Columbus Air Force Base nine months later. And I went on the asked, uh, told them I'd go on the moment's notice list. And a couple of weeks before I got commissioned, they said, we've got a slot in Del Rio, Texas. I said, I'll take it. My parents are from Laredo and Catula. So some people didn't want to go to South Texas. Me, that was kind of back in my happy spot. I would go there and, you know, I'd be on the border for my for my youth, you know, during the summers with my grandparents. So I was happy uh, to get to Del Rio. It was a wonderful place and the locals are wonderful people. So down to Del Rio and uh, wanted to wanted nothing more than to go uh, 
go fly fighters, but they, uh, they had different, uh, different plans for me. I stayed there as a T-38 instructor. And, uh, so I still had the fighter dream going and the fighter dream probably would have worked out for me, except for a couple of things. First of all, the big fighter drawdown in the uh, 1988 time frame, where Air Force is going from 40 fighter wing concept and it just began plummeting to a lot less fighters. And then two, it didn't help that I was probably my, the least favorite instructor of the, uh, of the squadron commander there. So uh, <laughs> I was always in trouble with the squadron commander. And, uh, it was, uh, that was going to be, it was going to be the proverbial, uh, hauling rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong scenario for me. So I <laughs> saw the writing, saw the writing on the wall and, uh, good, uh, one, one of the, one of the guys I knew a tweet fake, John Roush, he told me about this thing called the U2. And, uh, I, I said to him the same thing I've told people, uh, that have told, that have told me when I mentioned the U2, they still fly those. And then, you know, mine, this is yeah. 32 years ago. And uh, he said, oh yeah, they're, they're going like gangbusters. So, uh, John got hired and long story short, he helped me build the application up and, I submitted the application and went out there as a, as a, actually interviewed as the first lieutenant, showed up there and, oh man, a lot of people looking at me with the hairy eyeball. We got a lieutenant interviewing for the program. Are you kidding me? This is back in the guy still coming out of Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, they were running the place. And uh, I did the interview out there. was fortunately hired. I uh, was uh, the last person directly out of training to head over to England, to Al- RAF Alkenberry out near Cambridge. And uh, three and a half wonderful years flying the U-2 at Alkenberry. No, U- no T-38 companion trainer, but uh, flew, the, flew the U-2 extensively out there. And uh, really really learned how to, how to fly the aircraft in some very, very challenging uh, weather and wind conditions. And operational, uh, some of the operational missions out there were very, very challenging for us. Uh, wonderful tour. Burned out a little bit. I'm wearing the spacesuit. And uh, when they closed my unit, I was, I, we, we, were, we would have stayed there for just about ever. But they closed the unit, and I took orders to Randolph to fly the T-38 at uh, Pitt. Again, great chance to jump back in the 38. I'd missed it for four years, teaching other pilots how to be instructors in the T-38. So these are pilots mainly coming out of fighters and bombers, and uh, it was uh, it was a great great chance to get get much better my instructional chops, uh, especially with the T-38. Then to that, uh, promoted to major and uh, back off to U-2 land. Flew that for uh, back at Beale, mainly in the schoolhouse, teaching the new guys till about 2000. Uh, actually, about December '99, where I got out and went to the airlines. And uh, in uh, about, when was this? This would have been early oh, early to mid-01. How about mid-01? I'm getting off the, uh, I'm doing a, doing a flight. I'm in Chicago. Stand by the gate, waiting for, you know, passes to get off. And I see somebody, got, a couple people got off the plane. I recognize them. I recognize them. They're, they're Air Force folks I knew from Beale, some of the enlisted folks. Hey, hey, how you doing? And then one of my very close buds, Dean Neely, who uh, is actually coming back here to uh, be a civilian YouTube pilot now, gets off the plane. He goes, hey, Dean, how are you? I go, you know, hey, great to see you. Dean, where you been? Uh, I can't tell you. See ya. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, man, I really missed this. So I went down and got, got, got the application stuff all set up with the Air Force to come back on active duty. And then and I was talking to my wife about it. She's, she's like, no, you know, you made your bed. We moved to San, we left Beale. We moved to San Antonio, Texas. We're living there. I'm living right outside the gate of Randolph yeah. Air Force Base. She's like, no, I don't think it's a good idea. No, come on, honey. This is a great. No, that's a horrible idea. Back and forth, back and forth. But I went ahead and filled out the application. Left it sitting on my desk. And then I went and flew a trip. And I went and flew that trip on September 10th, 2001. And then the next day I was, uh, we're leaving uh, Kansas City on the way to Chicago. And I was airborne when, when 9-11 kind of went down. Wow. So stuck in, stuck in Chicago for five days. First, I was on the first flight back into San Antonio, walked in there. I gave it another couple of days to go over the application, let things cool down so I could get on to Randolph. And I literally hand walked my application and took 10 minutes down the road into the Randolph personnel center, put it on their desk, you know, probably around, I'm guessing around the 17th, 18th, 19th of September. And, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by November, there I was back in, uh, 
back in the Air Force, back going through T-38 pit to get requalified in 38 prior to packing everything up and moving back to California. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so back to California, I went back into uh, being a schoolhouse guy, uh, went over to the desert for Desert Storm 2 and was the commander of the uh, U-2s over in, uh, in Saudi Arabia for the for the early part of the war. And uh, kind of, you know, made my, you know, made my bet out there. And uh, uh, it came, <laughs> I want me to dive down, down, the, down about a couple minute path on this. Well, let's, or, I, I, let's talk about it. Cause I'm, I'm curious there, we got to go back and dig into some of the, the early upbringing and things like that. But honestly, I didn't know, I'm curious about the deployment to, to Saudi and Iraq, Iraq two or three, whatever we're calling it. Yeah. Um, because I imagine that was a pretty interesting assignment. Yeah, it was good, but the uh, the <laughs> the uh, the funny thing was, so uh, you know, coming off of off of uh, off of active duty, being a, being a uh, you know being an airline guy, and then coming back onto active duty, uh, you know, a lot of places they would they would they would not let you know your career is pretty much over. You're going to be the you know perpetual uh, you know uh, major forever, and, yeah. and uh, you burned your bridge. That was not so in the U two program. They're very very they're very receptive to uh to me coming back. So they kind of put me on the track to try to get somewhere, and uh, but my records were kind of a mess, and they and n- through not not through all complete faults of my own, uh, some things that were done improperly. Long story short, is I got passed over uh, while I'm in the desert waiting for the war to kick off as the commander, as a major, with a with a lieutenant colonel do. And and you uh, had and again you had a two year break in service, roughly. Like so, yeah, you're about completely about twenty months, completely yeah. out. Yeah, I can yeah. I can see this just going really well. Yeah, <laughs> so. So yeah, here we are getting ready to kick the war off, and uh, uh, I remember the ops group commander retired as a two stars and eagle guy. Um, uh, he, he's sitting at the table. He's like, "So you're a major, and you're the commander, and you're passed over, and your DO is lieutenant colonel." Yes, sir. That's right. That's the way the YouTube program works. He just shook his head and left. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no other platform, no like nowhere else in the Air Force <laughs> would that even like. Yeah, would that even but, come? Yeah, come to light. So then, if, then uh. About 2006 time frame, the Air Force came down and said, "Now, if you're if you're a major, we're, we we need to get people out 20 years, and you are you're a dot." So my date ended up being, uh, you know, t- I had to retire because uh, I was passed over uh, in in 2007. So about I think it was April, March or April 2007, and I hadn't done anything for for jobs or getting out. I just yeah, I, it's going to work out. And about three weeks before I retire, before I was forced to retire. The Air Force came down with a policy. You still had to get out if you were a major with, with three exceptions. Uh, helicopter pilots, U-2 pilots, and Roman Catholic priests. And, uh, <laughs> I, and I, I fit one of those categories, so I was extended out there. And then the uh, dur- and go- during this whole time, I had submitted a, some paperwork to the Air Force and said, yeah, I think you guys kind of made a mistake. You, you really should have promoted me. I'm a great guy, you know. And so look, this look at me. Been, look at me. Just look at me. Just look at me. <laughs> and I, this paperwork's been, been stewing around, you know, been – Roiling around, I'm sure, in the personnel hallways for a while, and shortly after this happened, I got the I got a I got a word. Hey, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna continue the investigation on this. You do have some valid points. And about four or five months later, I was on leave at home, and uh, uh, General Jake Palumbo was the wing commander. He was a Viper guy. I don't know. You may have yeah, he was yeah, he was the ninth, ninth Air Force commander when uh, yeah. I was at Shaw in the beginning. So General Palumbo gives me a call. Yeah, it might be a, hello. Is it hey Huggy? Yeah, Jake Palumbo here. Uh, yes, sir. What, what can I, yo, what can I do for you? Goes, Where are you? Well, sir, I'm at home. He goes, Huggy, you shouldn't be at home. You need to be at work. I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm on leave. It's okay. He goes, that's not an acceptable answer, Huggy. When a Lieutenant Colonel is, is, is called by the wing commander, he should be at work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not, I go, Lieutenant Colonel, he goes, yeah, you made, you got promoted. You, <laughs> you pulled it off. 
So uh, we, we ran down ran down the next day and did a brief uh, ceremony. So I went from being the most senior major on Beale Air Force Base to, I think, the most senior lieutenant colonel on Beale, Beale Air Force Base. Uh, <laughs> finished out uh, my, my, my career there at, uh, in 2010. They, were, they, were, they, were, they gave me a – they got an assignment to go uh, a non-flying job over, uh, for a year remote. Talked to the wife. She's like, no way. So I three-day opted the assignment, and which means I'm going to have to get out in uh, six months. But I'm determined to figure out how to defeat this threat. So working it, working it, working it, working it, working it, trying about four or five different avenues, nothing was working out. But as I got, as I approached the deadline, I, I, you know, General Bob Otto was the, uh, was the wing, was the wing commander. And I found out that the wing commander could request a six month extension. So I went to him and pled my case said, you know, it's to the benefit of the program. We're short of instructors. He signed the letter. We sent into AFPC and, you know, they weren't supportive, but they're not going to tell a one star to pound sand, you know? So, So I got my six month extension, which gave me a little bit more time. Then I come to find out that there's this thing called the Voluntary Retiree re, uh, Recall uh, Program. And uh, so I called the personnel center. I said, hey, I'm on active duty, but I'm retiring, you know, here, you know, in, in a few, in October. Can, can I apply for this program to come back on active duty? They said, we don't care what you're doing right now. Will you be retired by the end of the year? Yes, I will. Then you're eligible for the program. So I didn't tell anybody at AFPC what I was doing. Basically, one office in AFPC was forcing me to retire, and the other office in AFPC was, was hiring me back. So on uh, like October 29th, on a Friday, we went and had a quick ceremony in the bar. It retired me. On Monday, I came back, went through the processing with all the 18-year-olds on base. They even paid me 32 bucks to drive back to, 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 to re, re, reassess into the Air Force. I got 30, 30 something bucks for my drive from home. Sat there, got my <laughs> I turned in my retiree ID card, which I'd had less than a week, got my new ID card, and went back to the same desk I was sitting at three days earlier. Uh, that that is the quintessential air force story you know left hand not talking <laughs> to the right hand but if you know how to work the system like it works you just got to be persistent so I, I ended up doing that i got another year extension and retired in 2014 uh, and then after being gone 15 years returned returned to the airlines and i missed it right in there for about 20 early 2011 to early 2012 i was uh i was yanked away uh uh um uh, from from the U two that I love, and I went over to the MC twelve program for uh, for a year. And after thirteen months there, I was able to claw my way back into the into my happy spot in the U two. But that that's uh, that's uh, that's that's pretty much the run from eighty five until late twenty fourteen uh, for me, at least. That's 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 where the first big chapter ends. That's all I got. It was a great podcast. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I like the black hole, the MC twelve. I mean, if you're at if you're at Beale, that was the black hole. There was no escaping that. Like the yeah the pool but another discussion backing up to kind of the upbringing living in houston i would imagine being surrounded by all those guys in nasa was that kind of the push to to go pursue something in aviation yeah i've been asked that a lot and i and uh, i think i think it somewhere it had to be and i would guess i thought about flying airplanes uh maybe the time i was eight years old starting around then and uh but certainly uh certainly being around that environment with so many of the ast- you know the astronaut kids, my dad working on the Apollo program, uh, that was certainly a, a big part of it. And, and you know, even afterwards, uh, when I got to college, I, uh, I applied and got a job right across the street from NASA as a as a summer uh, and Christmas co-op. I would go back and work for IBM right across the street. I was working on the space shuttle program uh, as a uh, in in um, do, we were doing programming, and I was I was an intern in there. Yeah. and it was a, it was a fantastic it was a fantastic career. In fact, IBM made me a very lucrative offer coming out of college, but I'd, I'd had this dream for over, you know, 12, 13 years that I wanted to go in the Air Force, and I turned it down to take the commission uh, to go that route. But certainly the, the environment in Houston had a lot to do with it. Yeah, that's pretty wild, too. I think it's cool the fact that you're surrounded by that and then end up in the U2. 
Although, as you mentioned, you didn't know it was still flying around. So I imagine that wasn't a driver to go to the YouTube, but, um, you know, it's crazy. I, you know, I had a squadron commander who was always joking about, you know, he was flying up initial beating the Soviets, you know, while we were still in diapers, but the U2 as the walls coming down, that's, I mean, it's still very Soviet centric platform in the late eight, late eighties. It was, in fact, when I, the, uh, the mission, when I went over to RAF Falconberry, our mission was to, uh, was to put assets up there and, uh, monitor the full to gap where the where the russians are going to bring you know fifty thousand tanks across and all the all the uh, you know the army's going to be going head to head and all of our fighter base out there are going to be you know you know d- doing uh doing the dirty nasty stuff in the air against against the bad guys and our job was there to, to protect to protect the line you know czechoslovakia up through germany and that's what we did we flew up and down the inner german border in czechoslovakia that was the that was the, the meat and potatoes of our mission not the only mission we flew but that was the bulk of it no kidding yeah to me, that's just—I mean—it's wild to think about that. That plane was built, designed, and you know, in the fifties, late, you know, early sixties, still flying around the late eighties, and still flying around today. Yeah, it really isn't there. There's, there's, there's always been a push to get rid of the YouTube by people that want the budget and the money. But ultimately, when they—I hope I'm, I'm thankful that the people that make the decisions uh, look and see the capabilities that it has, and the what it is—it's got the ability to really—you uh, can put new plat, uh, new. Uh, New sensors on the aircraft, new processors. You can really up, update the aircraft, not just the airframe, but what the aircraft actually does. And it, it takes a lot of payload, and it brings it up really high. And it, it gives you that ability to just be the be the guy the the, top, the guy on the highest mountain out there, yep. looking and listening at everything. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll, we'll we'll it'll go away one day. Every aircraft does, but right. uh, we we've got a lot of life left in us. Really, we do. You know, until I came to the Air Force, I would have had no idea the U two was flying around in Iraq too, even. But I imagine that was a different mission set than you were doing uh, in the late '80s. It did, yeah, and and that really uh, really helped us grow a lot because the early guys, when I got in the program, it was you know get on the black line, fly the black line. It's been approved through the White House and the Pentagon, and you don't deviate. And now here we are in a scenario where we're looking at forty aircraft pushing across, uh, you know, at, at a particular hack. And you know we've got we've got eight Vipers down there, an AWACS, uh, maybe some EA6 Prowlers. We've got a we've got 35 aircraft that are that are basically working on the U2's timing and and where we need to be. So it really made us, you know, we had never gone to mass breeze before. Why we were you know we're the high altitude you know package commander. Oh, that's just me, you know. <laughs> and, and now we've got we got 35 other aircraft that are that are that are that are there supporting us to keep us alive so we can do our mission in a fairly hostile area. So. We we did a lot of growing as a uh, as a program, I think, uh, over in the Middle East uh, as a result of those experiences, and and we're we're reaping the benefit of that now. We've got some we've got some very very smart, capable folks, and, and you know, we just started our we just got our first graduates out of weapons school, and uh, so things are things are moving along pretty well in the YouTube from a tactical mindset. Yeah, you know it's kind of funny, uh, Jack Madison. I don't know what he what his call sign is, but I think he was one of the first guys to go through YouTube WIC. We were roommates going through Pitt, so it's it's cool to see. But I mean. The plane's been around forever, and now this is the first time we're having weapon school graduate weapon, you know, weapon school for the U two. Yeah, it it is. So uh, three three uh the three the first three guys got patched back in December, and then two more uh, they stayed in Ellis, but we got two guys patched one in the 99th reconnaissance squadron, one in my squadron, the first reconnaissance squadron, and we've got two more guys going through that will uh, graduate in December. So uh and and yeah, you know, they come back and they talk about some of the things they're doing with the F sixteens and the F thirty fives, and it's it's they are really stepping it up and taking it to the next level. And it's, uh, it's good for the, it's good for the, it's good for the entire cast, but it's certainly, certainly good for the YouTube program. What do those guys do down there? I mean, there's not a U2 sitting at Nellis, right? 
No, there's not. They, they, they will occasionally bring one down for some of the different exercises, but they, they could, they'll, they'll just, they're getting a lot of miles on Southwest going Vegas to Sacramento. So they'll come back out here. One of the instructors and a, and a, and a student, uh, maybe a few more, and they'll, but they'll fly the assets out of Beale. But we're so close to Nellis, we'll fly them out of here, go out to the Nellis range. They'll meet up with the, uh, the simulated adversaries, uh, blue air, red air, whoever, and do their thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, again, I'm only getting a little bit of the debrief, but it's really exciting stuff. The, uh, well, yeah, I guess that's a good point because we didn't quite highlight on the fact that you're back in the U2 flying it again as a civilian. So uh, yeah, uh, we, yeah. We, we, we ended at your military <laughs> career, but you're back in the U2 flying it again, right? I am. I am blind. You want you want to talk about Which, that right now? Or you want to wait? I think you know we should highlight the fact that you're the first civilian to come back and fly the U two, correct? Well, it's sort of, uh, but yes, but sort of. So uh, I retired in, retired in fourteen, and my my retirement ceremony September twenty six, twenty fourteen. I remember telling everybody in attendance, I just I'm I feel really good, but I just I, I just feel like something's I feel like I'm gonna be flying the airplane again. I don't know. So uh, we've been talking about in the YouTube for many, many years, since the late 90s, about bringing guardsmen in, reservists in, uh, contractors in, people to fly the aircraft. And we, have, we have this ton of experience that lives locally, and they separate, retire, and they, and they don't do anything. They don't, they, don't, they don't even come back and drive the chase car. They don't come back and teach academics hardly. We have a, a great we, – we've spent millions of dollars on these folks, and we're not, we're not, cap, you know, we're not recapitalizing their, 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 uh, or the investment. Yeah, I guess I didn't even process. There's no reservist flying the U two, which is pretty abnormal. Uh, yeah, actually, that changed just a few months ago, but uh, there have been no reservists ever. We're like the only asset in the Air Force that does not that did not have reservists flying. Yeah, that's I mean, like the twos, F twenty twos. I mean, all all the top of the line stuff. But you know, why the U two? We could we could never make it. We could never get it through leadership and make it work. But it's starting to we're starting to crack that shell now. Yeah, that's odd. I mean, because that's like the easy button. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, back. Now, as a civilian flying the U-2, sorry, I had to interrupt. No, no. So uh, I retired in a year and a half uh, as an executive director of an aviation nonprofit, and I just gave up on that and went back to the airlines. And uh, <laughs> this, all of a sudden, I got a call. Uh, found out found out back um, around the early about the first part of this, first part of this year, they were seriously going to advertise for a civil service GS, you know, not contract, but you know, civil service uh, U-2 pilot. They're going to act. They're going. They, and what had happened? The squadron had two. The first reconnaissance squadron, the training squadron, had two military billets that they were not using. They were on the books, but they really weren't filling them. They, we could never get the manning up to where they wanted. So the commander, uh, the guy who's the A nine now, and some other people conspired to go, "Hey, let's make this, uh, let's make this, you know, useful to the wing." They took those two slots, converted them to civilian slots. One of the slots was a full time. The other slot they, they split it into two part time slots. So. Uh, there was there was three positions in essence, two part time and, and and a full time, and they opened the application up on USA Jobs, and uh, lo and behold, three people applied. <laughs> it worked out. So, so uh, you know we uh, uh, we were all really you know we, we all been in the program a, a long time. We all, everybody knows each other. So uh, a lot of the guys had thought about applying, but a lot of people decided they weren't going to go do it. But we did the interview process, and uh, June eighth, I was the first of the three to to, to come back. And uh, here I am as as a as a civil service U two pilot. In fact, I just finished my instructor check about a month ago, and I just flew my first uh, student authority uh, just about a week and a half ago. It's wild. There's no set path. That's the moral of the story, you know. To it, you know, there, it's it's true, and you know, be persistent, and uh, you just never know. Even in the bureaucracy of the U S government and the U S military, <laughs> some very very unusual and cool things can happen. And you know, if you got the right people there, and you know, the, it was the right squadron commander. Uh, 
guy named Colonel Hall was the was the right guy to, to lead the charge. But uh, yeah, it's some str- <laughs> it's very strange, but it it's worked out very very well. What's it like teaching in the U two? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really different. Uh, you know, when you, when you come to the program, most of the time they'll tell you when you're interviewing, this is a program for aviators, people that really like to fly and, uh, to be in the schoolhouse teaching, uh, it's, it's, it, you're teaching a lot of basic, uh, you know, flying skills, but everybody that comes to the YouTube program knows how to fly, but they don't know how to fly the U2 and teaching in the, in the 1RS is different because you're teaching in the two seaters. We have four of the two seaters. And the rear cockpit is, uh, is, is, is just abysmal. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the worst layout you can imagine. You're trying to keep this person from dragging the wing, you know, t- uh, you know ground looping the aircraft on the runway, and uh, you're, you're fighting just to, just to be able to get your shoulders in the, can- in the back seat when they, uh, when they close the canopy up. So it's, a, it's an ergonomic nightmare. It's basically you're flying a, a Piper Cub with a 17,000-pound thrust engine, and it's really a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, nothing, nothing makes a, uh, well, I think a lot of people in the Air Force say, hey, let's go ahead and go fly a pattern only sortie. Well, especially the, the fighter guys are like, oh, just, just shoot me. Yeah. You, know, like, you want to go ahead and go kill stuff and blow things up and I, chase people down. And I just threw up my mouth when you said that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know what? When you go out to YouTube and fly it around the pattern, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a challenge. You, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's hard to fly it really, really well. And uh, it, you just beat yourself up constantly trying to try to make yourself better flying the aircraft in the pattern. And it's uh, it's really a lot of fun to go fly around the pattern, just like taking a taking a Piper Cub around in the pattern at your local airport. But uh, with a lot more pe- with a lot more thrust and a, and, a, and a lot more implications if you don't do it right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've never flown a U2, but buddies, obviously, like you who have flown it and tell me the stories and then watching like the chase cars, what's going into landing that plane. I know it's a lot of work. So I can see, you know, pattern only sortie. You're going to get out there and go practice, but God, again, that just makes me cringe thinking about it. We've got a, we got a, we had a guy that came. He was a 38th babe, came to the U2, uh, and then after touring the U2, he actually went to Vipers as a DG out of Vipers. Did that for a while uh, at Shaw. Came back and he was a schoolhouse guy at Luke. And I ran into him years ago, and uh, we were talking about uh, about flying the U2. We were in the squadron bar at Luke there, and and he um, uh, he said, you know, he goes. I was more comfortable in my first 40 minutes in the F-16 than I was on my Finney flight in the U-2. Because that plane, it just, you're never, you're never going to get comfortable in that aircraft. And when you're flying at high altitude, I mean, you're like, I, I know it depends on weight and certain things like that, but you're 10 knots from stalling and 10 knots from like the high-speed stall. I mean, you're you're flying on the edge, right? Yeah, you know, the, the envelope is a little bigger than most people think, but, you know, it's uh, our, our cruise mocks about six, seven knots before we kind of hit our we don't want to go above speed. I mean, have people oversped and gone above it? Absolutely. Right. But you really don't want to get up there. Certain parts of the aircraft start to go supersonic and uh, you get a you get a you get a buzz and a buffet in the tail. And that's, you know, when when, when the tail of your aircraft's buff, buzzing and shaking on, on a plane that's designed to handle less than two G's, you know, it's probably not a good thing. You don't want to go there too long. So it's a. Uh, yeah, it's uh, hard pass as you're sitting yeah. in your spacesuit. <laughs> God knows how high and your tail is going to rip off. Hard yeah. pass. No, or, yeah, it's at three in the morning over over the uh, you know over, over somewhere that over a big body of water where there's no moon and you're just sitting on the instruments and uh, it's yeah it's a uh, it's uh, it's it's a different it's a different adventure you know I'm sure a lot of aircraft you fly them and you don't really worry about you know getting out of the controllability envelope very quickly but the U two you when you're on the autopilot you know you always got that. You got that hairy eyeball out there watching everything going on because that plane will just turn around and bite you in a second. But uh, it's a, uh, it is, it is a, it's a big challenge and it's uh it's not for everyone, but for those that are doing it, it's a, uh, it's a great time. 
Yeah, not like the Viper, you know, it's pretty forgiving. Just pull as hard as you can and then I don't know. It's you're either gonna go to sleep or it's gonna give you that, you know? Like it's <laughs> it's binary, yes, no, it's gonna work. Not have to be a real pilot, so it's impressive. Do you do high altitude training in the two seater or is it like just get them pattern proficient and then cut them loose. No, actually, the the, the, uh, the way the, the syllabus works is 14 rides in the syllabus. The first uh, six rides are, are in the two-seater with your instructor. Just flying just flying instrument patterns, uh, engine-out patterns, no-flat patterns, normal patterns, patterns without the guy making the call from the chase car, and getting proficiency in that. Your seventh ride is a solo, your initial solo in the aircraft, and we make a big ceremony out of that. Uh, you know, as we, as we rightfully do, we've got a plaque of everybody that's ever soloed the aircraft in 65 years in the squadron and you get soloed and you know, one of the leadership uh, from the squadron or the wing will come out there and slap your solo patch on. Usually everybody that's in the squadron will come out there and meet you on your landing champagne, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, then your eighth ride is uh, your first high ride. You go up in the two seater with the, with your instructor, your first time in the suit. So there's a lot going on there because your first time you're taking the plane really above 5,000 feet. And there's a lot of things that happen in the, in the, in the climb and different checklists. And you have, we have a 52, 52,000 foot climb check, you know, and you transition from speed to mock at that point, and uh, and they're learning how to, you know, check the functions of the spacesuit to make sure it's you know it's 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 working right, and how to urinate in the suit, and how to do every, how to eat in the yeah. suit. And, to, you know, we, and they're only four hour flights or four and a half hour flights. They're, they're relatively short flights, but there's a lot of things we got to teach them in that short period of time, and, and it's a, it's a big big day of prep the day before, and uh, and you know the first time you put a spacesuit on, you know it's you know, what, what am I doing? You know, how, how do I even, you don't even know how to work in this thing. So we, there's, there's certainly a level we ha- we have to get them up to before we can get them uh, moving forward. They do that. I think they, they do another solo high flight, a couple low flights and their, and their check ride, uh, their 14th flight is in the two seater with an evaluator and go up and do mission tracks and threat avoidance and, you know, give them scenarios. And I know when I gave them, I gave some pretty, uh, some pretty unusual scenarios, uh, and, and threw a lot, threw a lot at them, but, uh, it, it's, I, I really enjoy giving the check right up there and uh, throwing a lot of, a lot of no notice things their way and see how they handle it. Um, yeah. yeah you sound like a fun evaluator. <laughs> I got a big picture though. I got a big picture. Yeah. I, you know, make, make them feel humble and then pat them on the back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just make them feel miserable for four hours land. <laughs> I don't know how long it takes to take that spacesuit off. You probably have to sit there for an hour. Is it uh, the, the prep to get into the plane? And it used to have to breathe oxygen, right, for an hour or something. Now that's like a waverable deal. But what what's the prep like just getting out to the jet? I mean, that in itself is a complex process. Yeah, so we uh, we start we go we pretty much start getting uh, getting dressed about uh, about an hour twenty hour twenty five prior and uh, into the underwear. Put on your urine collection device uh, and then out there. And you've got three technicians out there helping you get in the suit. Two of them doing it and a supervisor making sure that everything is precise. You know, the suit is the kind of thing. It, you, you, all it is is a backup if you lose pressurization you know, you know it could be an ejection if the canopy seal comes off you just lose pressurization due to whatever engine failure it's going to leak out but the suit is there to keep you alive because it's 70 60,000 feet or above above 63 in particular which is armstrong's line the nitrogen will come out of your blood and you'll basically boil to death so the suit is there to keep your body at 35,000 feet so i've never had the suit save my life in the aircraft it just sits on me and i've never never lost pressurization uh, what is it? What is the cockpit pressurized to? Are you sitting at thirty five thousand feet? What? Yeah, the cock for uh, for years and years and years and years. At if you were at seventy thousand feet, the cockpit would be about twenty nine thousand feet, top of top of Mount Everest. Oh. And uh, we had a lot of people getting uh, decompression sickness, the bends, and some even and some other things. You know, the bends is pretty minor compared to a lot of some of the DCS decompression sicknesses you can get. 
So we, they, years, a number of years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago, they went through an effort with the single seaters in the fleet and they, they changed some, some of the structure of the cockpit. They changed some of the uh, valves and such. And now we've, the, when you're at 70,000 feet, the cockpit altitude is about half of that, about 14.5 roughly. So significantly better. You're going to, we're going to see the DCS is almost going away. Uh, But they did not update. They did not spend the money on the two seaters. So if you fly the two seater, you're going to, you know, we, and that's, that's all we really do in the, in the school. Why am I in the two seater? So we, we're still going to 29,000 feet in there. And that's, that's, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's, that's what I did for my, for 20, 20 plus years in the U2. So uh, getting to, you know, getting to fly the, uh, the, uh, low altitude, uh, uh, the single seat went up high is just going to be a rarity. And it's a, if, if I get to do it ever, it's a, it's a bonus, but probably not very much. Huggy, you're now the guy in the squadron. Who's the old dude who, when everyone's complaining, like, well, that's how we used to do it. Like I'll, I, I got no fear. <laughs> I don't see a problem. Yeah. I don't understand why you guys are all whining about this. 29,000 feet is no joke. That's what I mean. I fly around the Viper at 45, 48, depending, you know, going cross country, which then the carpet altitude is probably sitting somewhere around 17. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I had one or two rapid decompressions. I was, I was keenly oh, aware wow. when I was sitting in the forties, you know, paying attention to everything. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, 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 no, that's a, that's no joke. You know, that it, it'll do some things to your, it'll do some bad things to your body. And, and when we're a lightweight jet, you know, it'll take us, uh, it'll take us 18, 19 minutes to get to 60,000 feet. And uh, so your cabin pressure is, I mean, you're, that, that thing's cabin altitude. It's rocketing up there yeah. when, you're running, when you're on a lightweight training load. So it's, you know, you can, you can feel your, you can just feel everything in your body starting to bubble as you, as you climb up, you know, all the gases trying to come out and it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's quite the ride. Obviously on a fully loaded mission jet, you're not jumping up to altitude like that, but nonetheless, it, uh, it, it does. And, but when you're sitting up there for eight, nine, 10, 11 hours at high altitude, especially when it was 29,000 feet, you come back and you are, you are tired. You are whooped. I, how long would it take you to descend? I was saying like my rapid decompressions, the, the two I had, I was below 10,000 feet pretty quick, but I had that ability to roll and pull. You can't do that. Yeah, we two. can't, we can't, we can't, we can't be the Viper split us uh, right on <laughs> yeah. down there. You know, we, 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 we kind of lollygag our way down, but, uh, um, and, and there's concerns also with, you know, we can, we can do an emergency descent where we're flying right on the red line coming down. I've done it a couple of times when I was stupid, when I was a captain just to try it. And, uh, I think I got down to below 10,000 feet and, I'd have to remember maybe 12, 13, 14 minutes, something like, I don't remember what it was. It was, it's been a long time. Our normal descent profile, uh, just day in, day out is about 35 to 40 minutes from, from altitude to on the ground. Uh, you know, again, you can, so you, you can certainly, you can certainly speed that up, but you know, when you're yeah. pushed up against the red line, you, you know, the, the planes, it's a fragile aircraft and, and you know, you don't want to put yourself in a, in a, in a worse situation. The funny, the interesting thing is if you lose the engine in the aircraft, let's say you're at 65,000 feet and the engine quits, it's going to take you close to an hour and a half to come down, to glide down. It's just <laughs> nothing, no, but, no thrust. nothing but time to f- nothing but time, you know? Yeah, pull out a cigarette, smoke a lucky, look at the chart. You know, see who's got the best best per diem to divert to. And that was the joke I, when I was flying in England. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out which offices clubs are open and uh, who's got the best per diem, and I'm gonna divert there. I got plenty of time to figure it out. Uh, yeah, it's it's you know no drag. You can't put the drag out once the engine quits. It's all, most of it's hydraulically actu- actuated, so it's stuck. You'll 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 emergency drop the gear at some point. But yeah, it's gonna be uh, 80, 80 minutes. I think is what the book says for uh, to come down from altitude. Lots of time. That's why, I, was, uh, I mean, a flame out pattern, I imagine the U2 is pretty interesting to fly. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, we've had this, we have this discussion a lot, and I would personally change a lot with the, with the, in the flame out pattern. But for what we have right now, it's, uh, you need about, 
if you're over the runway at about a, at about a thousand feet, you can do a 360 and land it. That's all you need. So that's insane. We, we shoot we shoot for a little bit more than that. We 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 build it up with about we we like to hit it at fourteen hundred feet and give ourselves some buffer. But yeah, if you know if I hit it thousand feet AGL, yeah, I should be able. Should, there's no excuse for me not making it, especially with my experience level. I should be able to get it back on around and make it. Yeah, you know, showing up at a high key in the Viper about ten thousand feet, you know, you should be able to make it. <laughs> ten thousand, a thousand, yeah. somewhere in the middle. Yeah, somewhere somewhere in there. You know, it's rough. You got a brick with no wings versus nothing but and, wings. And you're probably flying that pattern at two two hundred plus knots. I don't know. Right? Yeah, usually. And it depends, yeah. I mean, obviously, it all depends on weight. You know, high keys sure. can be somewhere between seven and ten thousand feet usually. Yeah, yeah, uh, we're at, we're a thousand feet and about ninety knots. <laughs> ninety knots. Yeah, you see that on the runway when the nose wheel touching down. Yep, ninety knots. Yeah, we're touching touching down. Probably if you're lightweight, uh, touching down in the sixties. That's yeah. wild. I, here's a question. So, if you had a punch out in the U two at altitude. So Viper seat, you're going to stay in the seat until about 14,000 feet, roughly, mm-hmm. before you get man seat separation. You're just going to be yep. riding, staring straight down at the ground. Is the seat similar in the U2? Uh, similar similar function. It's the same seat that was in the SR-71. And basically, this, I'm told, the same seat that was in the space shuttle. I guess the shuttle had, four, had a seat in it for the first four flights. Oh. Uh, but it's a Lockheed seat, I believe. And so, yeah, same thing. You're going to, If you go out at altitude, you're going to be in the soup. You're going to ride in the... You're gonna be riding the seat down with a drogue shoe behind you. you know, just you're gonna be falling to the earth for a for a long time. You all you're falling in the seat, pull out War and Peace, read the book, yeah. and throw the book away, and then and then eventually get the seat man separation around fifteen thousand feet also, and uh, and then you'll get the you'll get you'll get the opening. Be that uh, Max Baumgarter, what are the the Red Bull guy who jumped yeah. out of the little capsule, just I don't know, screaming <laughs> down to earth, supersonic for a while. Yep. Gosh, it's such a wild concept, and it's impressive to see that plane fly. That is for sure. Yeah. What, you know, looking back at obviously your storied career, you probably have more YouTube time than most people, I would say. What what has been the best part of flying that plane? Coolest oh, mission? Uh, I, mean, I know you you know, I was really, uh, I really, going through pilot training, really, really wanted to be uh, nothing more than, than, than to be a fighter pilot. Uh, but getting into the U2 and getting settled into that, I found that that, 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 is, that was the perfect assignment, I think, for me. I, I, what I really like about it, I love teaching. I love the basic teaching part of the aircraft. Um, I, you know, my first tour was purely operational out there on the road, but I learned a lot about flying it and just, just the difficulty, the stick and rudder stuff. I, I, I really found that I really enjoy, uh, talking, teaching and, and the, the stick and rudder stuff. I mean, the mission stuff is great too, but there's that aspect of just the, the flying of the aircraft I love. And, and, you know, one of the things and it's, I guess it's a bit of a cliche, but you hear it from everybody. And now that I'm back in the squadron, but the, one of the things I really love about it is the, uh, is the environment I work in, the people I work with. You know, it's an it's an all volunteer program. Nobody nobody gets forced to come to the U two. And when I ran the interview process, I told people that all the time. I, they'd come in. I said, "Hey, you know, it's it's different. It's cool. Shiny black aircraft. Shiny black T thirty eight on the ramp. You're all excited." I, I, I would tell them, "But think about this really carefully, because if you interview, you fly the airplane well, we hire you. And a year into this job, you go, oh, I should have never done this." I said, "You have made your own. You have made your own mess." Yeah. Nobody's forced you, held a gun to your head to, to come, come do this. So make sure it's what you want to do. So, so by and large, we've got folks that they really want to be here and they really enjoy it. And they, uh, and, and it's, so to go back to your question, what do I love about it? I, I really love, I love the people I work with, uh, in the U2 squad. And they're just, they're just wonderful people. I'm sure you felt, you saw the same thing in, in your Viper squadron. Uh, but I, I really do love the, uh, the mission and the people and the focus we have on it. And, uh, it's just, it's just a great place to work and a great place to fly. 
I think anywhere there's like a filter. And I think, you know, flying a fighter, there's usually a filter to get to that point. So most people who are there want to be there. Now there are people who get there and realize they don't. And th- that's always going to happen. But did you guys start doing the YouTube flying interview as a, you know, as a way to filter guys out to kind of expose them to this fact? Or just, or is it purely to see, does this guy have the left hand, right hand? Monkey yeah, it's, it's a little bit. It's it's more of that you know that they started doing the interview process long before I got in. Uh, in fact, when they started the program originally, they were they were they would come to people that were, it was mainly F eighty uh, four and RF eighty four pilots, and they would come to them and say, uh, "We've got a program. You want to go to it? Yes or no? Uh, n- no questions. No. Do you want to go? Yes or no? And so they 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 you know they were hand selected and, and that sort of thing. And over over the t- over time, when they they had a lot of mishaps. They started interviewing people you know, for, for the program, and and we've 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 obviously morphed on, on that a little bit, but we want to make sure, especially nowadays. Uh, you know, F sixteen is a good example, C seventeen, fly by wire aircraft. This the U two is, uh, it's a very poorly designed aircraft from the standpoint of flight controls, and and you know, we have we had a couple guys go through test pilot school, and they tell us something called the Cooper Harper scale, and they they measure from one to nine every quality of the aircraft, the rudder of usage, the cockpit visibility, da, 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 da. and they say the U-2 pretty much fails every category they've ever tested. They would never buy the U-2 again, ever. You mm-hmm. just wouldn't do it. So so when you, when you, when you, when you, when you take somebody who's, uh, you know, me as a 38th FAPE, I came out and did my interview, pro- my interview rides. I go back and watch the video. I'm surprised they ever hired me. Taking a pointy-nosed guy and teaching him how to stuff full rudder into the aircraft when you're six feet off the runway in a crosswind and it's it's you've got to you got to break habits you learned in other aircraft to fly this aircraft effectively and you know without damaging it. So that's the re- reason we have the, we have the interview process. It's to see how well they they can they can dump their old habits and pick up the U two habits, uh, the, the the necessary U two skills, as well as we also want to see how they think, how they how they uh, you know how they ha- handle themselves, and all all the usual things you would want from somebody that's going to be yeah. you know, spending the rest of their career in your, in your unique program. But the, the flying skills is definitely a, a big, a big part of the program. You know, we, we only see, we only see them fly for, you know, we, it's three sorties. It's about seven hours of flying time. And I'm, we've certainly made mistakes. I'm sure we've, we've told people, you know, no, that, you know, had we given them, you know, in the middle of training, they would have suddenly taken off and doing fantastic pilots, but we can only go on the snapshot that we, uh, that we see. Yeah, no doubt. What's interesting too, is the fact that you guys have T-38s there obviously proficiency trainers or, you know, ability to get more air up underneath you because you can't fly the U-2 all the time. But those two planes, the U-2 and the T-38, other than ergonomics, I think cannot be further apart, right? Yeah, you know, but the uh, they are. They're, they're completely different aircraft, which uh, I think is kind of a blessing, actually. But the, one of the nice things about it, they're A model, the 38A model, so round dials. Uh, but that 38 requires a fairly fast uh, scan. Yeah. And because uh, we always say about the U two, it's it's the fastest ninety knots you'll ever go. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it's it's amazing getting that aircraft and just find yourself getting behind. You know, and we'll, we'll, we cruise at one hundred and sixty knots indicated. That's it. In fact, we have we have a, the fifth ride in the syllabus. The students are now realize the students have already checked out in the T thirty eight. They've probably been cross country in it. They're bombing all over the place, getting proficiency, you know, training, instrument training, nav training. They're getting good in the thirty eight. And the fifth ride in the U two, we put them up there and we we leave the pattern. We actually go up to Chico, California, sixty miles away so we take off we climb to 17 16 5 we head to chico and we're doing like 200 knots indicated so we're doing two-thirds the speed of the u2 but you would swear we were doing mach 4 going out to chico because they're all holding on to the tail and they can't keep up and it's like it, it, the, the plane just it just crushes you the first time you try to 
actually go somewhere with it. And here you are, you're good at doing it in the 38, but you, why can't you do it in the, in the YouTube? I don't know. And I always joke that the ride's called BQ5. I always joke when the student goes to BQ5 when I brief them. I used to when I was active duty. Hey, you'll, we'll fly BQ5 today. You'll bust the ride, and then we're gonna we're gonna refly the ride here in three days. And, and you know, it was it was, <laughs> a, it, was it was a highly busted ride. And, and usually I end up busting the guys. I kind of joke about it, but yeah, they 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 pretty much don't fly very well the first time. So uh, <laughs> it's it, it's it's funny it's funny rain because again, you know, you're used to you're used to bombing around the place at 400 knots, but you you put somebody in a U2 doing 180 knots, and they just they can't do it the first time. Well, you know, it's one of those things too. The fact that I know that BQ five, right? They've had five rides in it, but you, it's different environments. And every time you're changing, no matter who you are, every time you're changing environments, it takes a time. I can't imagine putting that. If you put me in that spacesuit, I wouldn't even know how to get in the plane. You know, like yeah, it, restricted it, it, visibility, movement, all those things are just crushing. Yeah, and another thing we say when you put the suit on, as soon as that helmet goes on, locks into place, your IQ drops twenty to thirty points. Yeah, and you just, you know, you. It, 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 it's a game changer for the first few times. It really is. We have to do one ride wearing the Kim gear and the Viper, Ugh. which it, it depends on who your IP is and how far you have to go. Mine was start the jet and then you can take it off. But some guys will do the departure, which I think is the most insane thing in the world to do because you can't see anything like mine was in the summertime in South Carolina. I barely got the jet started and it just had to rip that stuff off. I'm like, if we get cammed on, I mean, we're dead anyways, but you know, neither here nor there is like, I'm going to kill myself on departure just flying this stupid gear. But I imagine it's like wearing a spacesuit. Oh, it it is. But you know, at least we have the vent going into the spacesuit. So we're getting, we're getting cooling through that. You have to have the cooling, but no, at least with with the, with the kit, with the Kim gear. Yeah. You're, you're out of luck on that. Yeah. The, uh, the other aspect too, going T38 U2, you know, it's funny now I flew a super cub a few weeks ago, so I haven't touched a rudder pedal in quite a while. But to go between the T thirty eight, like you touch the rudders, you'll die. To the U two, you must use the rudders. <laughs> you don't have a choice. Yeah. It's such a dichotomy there. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, very, very different, very different aircraft. You know, and it's it's really neat to go. You know, it doesn't happen very much, but some days you'll have the, uh, you know, T thirty eight in the morning and a U two in the afternoon, or vice versa, and uh, it's uh, that's a pretty special day. Yeah, making good pilots. Well, yeah. as we kind of wrap up here, Huggy, I always like to ask guys. You know, if you found, you know, 15, 16 year old Huggy walking the streets of Houston, is there anything you would tell him to do differently? I mean, you're crushing it. And you're like, you, again, I, we had to like probably look at the records as far as who has spent more time in the U2, you know, or the longest time in the U2. You might be up there. I'm, I'm probably doing pretty well. I and mean, we know there's a couple of guys that have been flying for uh, NASA and, uh, you're doing flight tests down at, down at, uh, down at Palmdale that, that have, have, have had a lot of longevity in the U2 quite a bit. But uh, doing the active duty side of it uh, only, uh, I, 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 yeah, there's probably not too many. Yeah. But you know, there, there's some guys that, that did that did did the NASA thing for very, very many, many years. Many yeah, years. That, is, that doesn't count. That's NASA. That's a different piece. <laughs> I'm talking Air Force. But what would I tell myself? You know, I, uh, I, I, boy, there's not a whole lot. I would have told myself probably just to just to lighten up, relax. It, it'll all work out. You know, but just don't, you know, don't be not persistent. Continue to lean forward and be persistent. But yeah, don't 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 worry about things so much. If you if you're persistent, and you work hard, uh, and you've got some goals, you'll you'll do fine. I also would have told myself probably play a little less soccer. And I would have learned to play the guitar instead. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's uh, you know I've, I've asked myself many times, what would I change about my career? And uh, you know I think if I could have gone to fly the the A10 for two years, I'd probably give up two years ago just to go go fly on the A10 for two years. I think that would have been a hoot. But uh, you know, really, quite frankly, uh, you know. 
I, there's just not much about it I would change. I, like I said, I, I, I fell into the YouTube uh, program, you know, after not, after not getting my dream of going to fighters and, uh, I, it, it, it couldn't have turned out any better. And one thing we didn't even mention this entire time, you're also flying a triple seven. So you, I mean, you, you got it all going on. Like, <laughs> and that the persistent piece, yeah, I think it ties back into like, there's no set path, but it's like kind of the path that you make. And if you're, if you want something, you can go out there and do it. Prime yeah, example, it's, Huggy. It's all, it's all available. You know, you just got it. You got to, you got to figure out how much you can do. And uh, again, my wife said, I'm trying to bite off more than I can chew you most of the time, you know, between air shows and Patriots jet team and everything else. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the U2 thing is, uh, has been quite a blessing and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be back into it. Now, Huggy, I know they're happy to have you back in it and the air force is, is better for it. So I want to thank you for everything you've done, uh, our friendship and thanks for taking the time to chat today. Well, thanks, Rain. It's uh, this is a lot of fun. I appreciate you uh, you thinking of me, inviting me onto your podcast. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be back in two weeks with another round.